you brought a Bible, would you open with me to the book of Revelation chapter 4? By way of introduction, my name is uh, Les Newsom. I am delighted to call so many of you uh, friends and many of you family. Uh, And it is always a joy to be able to come be here. And even better than that, a chance to be with you for a number of weeks. Uh, As you know, uh, your beloved pastor, or maybe he's beloved, um, (laughs) Jimmy Young is uh, in Kazakhstan, of all places, doing some teaching over there. And so remember to pray for he and Susie while they're away. But I have the grace of being able to sort of put together a bit of a series over the next five weeks through the book of Revelation. And my goal is at the end of that time to remove or extract, as it were, some of the fear of this book. Um, I assure you my intention is not to be controversial at all. It's okay if you disagree with me on any sort of given point regarding the particular take that we're going to do regarding this. But in the end, we definitely want to see and find in this book what every single book in the Bible ought to lead us to. And that is to Jesus. Jesus is walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opens the scriptures and tells them about how the scriptures bore witness of him. And so if we're looking for a meaning of a book and it doesn't find in something in Christ, we've missed the message of that book. So that's my intention in these weeks ahead. And if nothing else, it'll be a novelty to come look at. (laughs) And especially if nothing else, it'll be a chance for us to read what I think is honestly some of the most extraordinary prose that we have in the Bible. Beautiful passages of Scripture that, quite frankly, are just as much fun to read as they are to preach. So Revelation chapter 4, let's begin with the reading of God's Word. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open to heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. It's now been a number of years since my oldest daughter uh, was very young and posed us the question that oftentimes parents dread getting. Which is, Daddy, is it true that, in, that a certain uh, 
uh, female visitor in the night after I have lost some of my dental work and placed that dental work under my pillow and replaces that with money, is it true that that's my parents? And of course, at that moment, you have a parental crisis where you're thinking to yourself, and I'm not sure I want to lie to the child. So we looked and I said, well, well, yes. And then she followed up with a statement that ever since she made it has always bothered me, in which she said, well, so then she's not real then, right? And I suddenly thought to myself, why is it that my children have to choose between something that is accessed by the imagination and something that is real? And I realized that very early on, my child had imbibed a spirit that has sort of reigned in our sort of modern uh, world for the last 200 some odd years where we have attempted to build a society with a fundamental idea about science being able to explain the things that we see around us. And if you haven't been paying attention, the last 100 years of that little thought experiment have shown us that it's failing. Science is showing itself unable to answer the most profound questions in life. Hence, we have one of the most extraordinarily violent centuries that we've had on human record. But one of the great casualties of, the, uh, of that sort of scientific worldview being so myopically preoccupied is that we lose something in the Christian worldview that we cannot do without, and that is our sense of ability to wonder, to be amazed, to be thrilled at stories which ignite our imagination and themselves become ways in which we access things by faith. It's another sermon for another time, but faith and imagination are interestingly interlinked. But again, that's another question. For me, I always think about that great scene in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the three older Pevensey children are sitting with the professor, the one who owns the home in which they're staying at that that, uh, year. And at one point, they begin to realize that this professor thinks that little Lucy's stories (laughs) about walking into a wardrobe, into a whole other world... Like, he thinks that they're real. So much so that at one point, the oldest, Peter, looks at him and says, well, forgive me, but you're not suggesting that there are, could be other worlds, you know, just like all over the place or right around the corner like that. And the professor says, nothing is more probable. Of course. I do wonder what they teach in these schools today. I love that scene. Why? Because C.S. Lewis is capturing something that was absolutely true of the Jewish mind. Because the Jewish mind, and therefore the writers of the texts of Scripture, did not view heaven in the way in which Stevie Wonder taught us to view heaven back in the 1970s, that it is somehow seven zillion light years away. Heaven, rather, to the Jewish mind, is God's space among us. Our space is God's space. However, the problem with that space is, though, because God dwells there, it is shielded from our eyes. Not, we find out, because of his unwillingness to let himself be known. No, 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 no. The Bible will not let you get away with that. The Bible over and over again says that God's presence is obvious. It's so everywhere. The reason why we can't see it 
is because we're suppressing it. We hold it down. The psychological state that the Bible puts us in is one of repression of something we know to be true, but that we don't want to admit is true, because if we do, it means we're not in charge. And you know the chief result of that? Blindness. We can't see. And so when the Holy Spirit shows up in our lives, one of his chief functions and activity for us is to give us sight, new sight to be able to see that which is there. And for us, it gets pictured for us as a door. Look what it says there in the opening verses. John looks in verse 4. In verse one, uh, chapter four, verse one, and says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And so when John goes through, he does not enter into an imaginary world, though it is certainly access to the imagination. But I would suggest to you that where he enters into is the real world. That's the real world. We are, as it were, a copy made in its image. And that world is shouting to us, all the time. And so this morning, I want to look at this life through the door, through three questions. Number one, what was it that John saw? Number two, what does it mean? And then number three, how does it apply? Okay? What John saw, what he meant, and how it applies. Number one, what did John see? Well, you know, you don't have to be some sort of budding Bible exegete to know what it was that sort of captured John's attention, do you? The first thing John saw What's the throne? And you know that he's preoccupied with it because he keeps saying the word. (laughs) Twelve times in my English translation, it's actually 14 times in the original Greek. He keeps saying the throne, and I looked at the throne, and then I saw the throne, and then around the throne. It's the throne that's captured his eye. Now remember, John is a good Jewish person. He actually will not describe the one sitting on the throne because in honor of the second commandment to not make graven images, he won't describe the image of the one there. But what he does describe is what it was like to look at it. And he says what it was like to look at it was like looking at a precious jewel. Gentlemen, I don't know if you remember that moment when you walked into the jeweler's store you know, a pocket full of money, maybe, <laughs> or a pocket that was about to be emptied of your money, likely, and sat there and looked at a diamond. Do you have any memory of this moment? I remember mine vividly. It was actually here in Memphis. Uh, I went to Lowell Hayes Jewelers, of all places, on a recommendation and walked in and said, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to ask a young lady to marry me, and so I'd like to get her a ring. And uh, the helper there was, what would you, rolled out the, uh, not the red carpet, but the black carpet. That's the first thing they do. They pull out this little cool black sort of carpet and lay it out there and he brought a big light over and then a little envelope that had, had you know, all these, these uh, um, diamonds inside of it. He put a few out on the, on the black thing and he said, okay, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold this. And he took these two little, little, little big tweezers and he put it on either side of the stone. And then he gave me what I really came for, which is that cool little jeweler's monocle that they look through. You know what I'm talking about? You know, you get to look down through. That's all I really wanted was to look through the cool little sunglasses there. So I picked that thing up and he said, okay, now get it in focus, get it to where it needs to be. And now, do you see it? I was like, yeah, I got it in focus. He goes, now just for a second, and he was manipulating the light around me, I could tell. He goes, now just for a second, I want you to turn it. And so I just kind of flinched it a little bit. And I'm telling you, it was as if the thing lit on fire. Suddenly, the thing just burst into colors. 
that flame from the inside. And I, I think I let out an audible, wow. And then I found myself like, I'm going to do that again. <laughs> so you turn it again, and then you, you try it again. And then you, then you turn the thing over so you can look from the bottom side up and see the, the clarity on the inside of the gym. And then you want to look back on the top straight down where you can see all the, the facets kind of forming together. And then you're thinking to yourself, how in the world did they make all those tiny little edges? And suddenly I found myself sort of lost. So much so that the jeweler had to look at me and say, you know, I've got some other ones I'd love for you to look at as well. Hey, when was the last time that you looked at something and the looking at it was its own reward? In other words, you weren't looking at it for whatever it was that you were hoping to get from it by looking at it. It was the mere staring at it that brought the reward. That's what John saw. The throne was something that he simply could not stare at enough. And as he did, it was as if he loses track of time. But as he begins to take in the scene, what else does he see? He sees a a rainbow stretching across, which is made of emerald. That's important. Because that is a figure that comes from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1. Where Ezekiel sees the exact same thing. And what is it saying? It's saying that this is the God of the covenant. This is the God who is the God of Noah, who has promised to exercise all kinds of order and control over nature itself. This, I think, is one of the reasons why all the singers who are singing praises later on are preoccupied with creation. By by your hand, all things were created. The rainbow speaks that. Secondly, he looks up and sees 24 thrones around the throne. More thrones. Don't let that number throw you off. I think that's actually a fairly simple number to interpret. When Jesus comes along, he builds upon the work that the people of God prior to his coming had anticipated in him on the basis of the fact of the 12 tribes of Israel. He speaks of the people of God that came before him as the 12 tribes of Israel. But now he's beginning a new work of God's work in the world through his own personal work, a culmination, if you will, of what came before. And he's going to begin that with the what? The 12 apostles. 12 and 12 equal 24. I take the 24 elders to be the simple picture of all of the saints of God who came both before and after the work of Christ. And they're all throwing down and giving every credit, every benefit to their life, they're giving back to him because they realize everything was ultimately about him. Thirdly, we find that John hears rumblings coming from the throne. What does that make you think of? Does that remind you of standing around Sinai with the children of Israel as they see God appear on the mountain and the mountain like literally catches on fire and the children of Israel freaking out and they're looking and they're kind of like, you know, we're okay, Moses, if you talk to this God, we'll be good back here, thank you. (laughs) That's what John says it feels like. Have you ever sat through a thunderstorm where the thunder got close enough to you to, to rattle your own chest and you're thinking to yourself, whoa, that was a close one. It arrests you, doesn't it? It sort of causes you to pay attention. That's what John says it was like to be around the throne. Finally, he sees four living creatures floating around the throne. My best interpretive work on what the four living creatures are is this. I have no idea what the four living creatures are. My suspicion, if you put a gun to my head, is they probably stand in some way for the created order. All of creation itself will sing its praises to God. But here's the deal. I'm not insecure about not knowing what the four living creatures are about because the emphasis in the text is not on what they are, 
but it's rather on what they do. That is, the main activity of heaven is worship. They are worshiping. They are gathered around the throne. They are singing praises to the one who himself has held all of these things together uh, for himself uh, and for his own glory. Now look, I could be wrong about what the images stand for, but what I don't think I'm wrong about is what John ultimately means. Because when John is looking at all these images, what he's saying is, is all of the concentric circles that sort of reverberate out from this, this main throne are telling us that what is there is utterly and profoundly important. It is weighty as anything could be. The illustration I give is about what it's like, what it takes to come and see someone. If you want to come and see me, it's really not a complicated task at all. Uh, When I'm not on the road, I'm usually at home in my office in a corner of my bedroom in my home, and you can get in your car and drive down to Oxford, Mississippi, find 126 Mulberry Lane and knock on the door. That's about as complicated as it is to come see Les Newsom. But let's say you want to go see the president. You can't just walk up and knock on the door of the White House and say, I'd love to see the president. No, you have to go through all kinds of of intermediaries and and, and secretaries and, and congressmen and senators. And it's a big deal to get in to see that. Why? Because the higher your level of importance, the more people you have to go through to get access to that person. And what John is saying, therefore, to us is, what is there on the throne is weighty. It is crucial. And that once you realize he's there, you learn that there is an urgency to his presence there. He presses himself upon you with a sense of ultimate importance. And we... we, We ignore him to our peril, he might say. So that's what John sees. Secondly, what could all this mean? What does John mean for us to get from this? And I think we can at least say simply this. Because someone could look at this and say, okay, Les, so see if I'm getting this straight. You Christians believe that there's this place called heaven that's among us. It's not way out there in the sky somewhere. um, And that God's there, right? It's just on the other side of reality. Um, Cool. Knock yourself out. You believe whatever you want to believe. That sounds fine. But actually we believe something further. Because John is going to go on to say, and I think it's back of his thinking here, that because that world is the real world, with the fountain of all creation coming from it, that word forms, as it were, the spiritual scaffolding for this world. What do I mean by that? I mean that if we as human beings are created in his image and that he is the source and fountain of creation and he lies just beyond the veil, what is going on there necessarily creates, as it were, the pattern of life here. What this means is that that world is sending echoes, reverberations into our world even though very few of us even acknowledge the fact that it's there. And that means, therefore, that if worship is at the center of that world, it means that worship is at the very center of our world as well. Tim Keller was the one who put it this way. Worship is the controlling mechanism of your character. 
Don't believe me? Well, let's see if we can unpack this. First of all, what do we mean by worship? I think I've told this illustration before, but I love to tell a story about, um, about a conversation I had with my dad. Many of you know I lost my dad about uh, four years ago this summer. And, and by the way, by the way, brief commercial, um, thank you for caring for me and my family and for loving my dad during his latter years of being a member of this congregation. I, I don't say that lightly. Many of you showed kindnesses to my father that even I didn't show after I'd moved off and flitted away. Thank you for that. But in the, for those of you who've lost a parent, you know that you, 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 do a lot of, you do a lot of life processing. And you remember stuff that you're like, strange for my brain to hang on to that. But I remember having a conversation with my father when I was young about the business of heaven. Dad, what do you think we're going to do in heaven? It just strikes me as a long time. <laughs> forever seems to be a long time like what are we going to do there and I'm sure, my, I'm sure my father would be gratified to know that I think he answered me rightly now by saying this well Les we're going to spend an eternity in heaven praising God and I vividly remember thinking to myself okay anything else at all please I hope praising God <laughs> it, you know it, reminded, it reminds me of that little far side cartoon the far side. Do you remember the far side? I used this illustration a couple of weeks ago with some college students, and they were all like, what's the far side? And I was like, oh, that's horrible. How impoverished is this generation? Because they don't remember the far side. It was a single-panel cartoon, kids, that was hilariously funny. And one of my favorites is of a guy who has just shown up in heaven. You remember this one? And he's sitting on a cloud, uh, and he's just gotten his new wings. He's got a harp down beside him. And the thought bubble above his head reads... You know, I wished I'd brought a magazine. <laughs> In other words, the thought of spending an eternity praising God doesn't really strike me as that great. But here's the deal. Worship, though, I think John wants us to take much more broadly. Worship is not simply that which Jim Umloff does for us Sunday in and Sunday out. Rather, worship is... Let's see if we can do with, do with this definition. Worship is nothing more than what goes on inside of you when you find something that you value. Does that make sense? Worship is what goes on inside of you when you find something of value. And if you'll actually cling to that definition, you'll realize that worship is not just Sunday morning. You are always worshiping. As a matter of fact, worship, as it were, is, is the activity of human existence. Because finding something of value and moving towards that thing of value, sort of setting up my life because of this image that I have in my mind of what I value, constitutes all of your human action, I would argue. Think about a football fan. I love this idea. You have a football fan who, who spends a lot of time during the week studying the object of his worship. He reads the newspaper about it. He, he flips through, even, even maybe on Sunday mornings, through ESPN.com, because nobody can see in front of this pew. <laughs> he studies his object of worship. He even evangelizes to his friends about it. He's like, man, did you see that game? <laughs> Finally, he spends his money, his hard-earned money, so that what? He can come into the presence of his object of worship. And once he walks up into the stadium or the, or the Colosseum, or the forum. It's a FedEx forum now, right? Suddenly, he's transformed, right? His posture changes. His, his countenance begins to glow. And what does he do? He shouts praises. 
to the object of his worship. Worship is finding something that you value. What comes out of your mouth while you're worshiping is what we call praise. Praise and worship is the activity of heaven. But what I'm trying to convince you of this morning is that praise and worship is your activity of every moment of your life. This is why depression is so difficult. Because in many ways, depression is looking at all the former values of life and realizing that they're not, they're not fulfilling me anymore. They have lost their luster. Hold that thought. We're going to return to that. It's going on all the time. Worship is always happening. Think about this in evaluating this. To what does your mind wander when you have nothing else to think about? What do you console yourself with when life is difficult or hard or disappointing? Because however you answer that question is the object of your worship. And the funny thing is, it's not a bad thing. You're supposed to take joy in the fact that you have a job that you love. But when all of a sudden I give that thing my ultimate joy, it's corrupted. So much so that C.S. Lewis would say, if you aim at heaven, you'll get heaven and earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you'll get neither of them. Jesus put it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you, not taken away. Why? Because we are worshiping creatures. And John saw it through the door. Thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this, how can we apply this? Well, I think by two ways. Number one, you have to realize that if worship is the controlling mechanism of our character, it therefore is going to be the way in which God brings about your transformation. Tragically, in our day, oftentimes evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-following people think that when they became Christians, that's when they got the gospel. But then later on, I moved to the more advanced stuff. May I rid you of that thought? The gospel is both the beginning, the middle, and the end of the entirety of the Christian life. The angels have said in 1 Peter that they long to look into how God has saved his people. My guess is it'll probably preoccupy us for the rest of our lives as well. We've missed something. But what that means then is we are not sanctified, transformed in our Christian life until our worship is affected. And I would, I would go so far as to say this, if we begin to take the means of transformation, like reading one's Bible, or praying diligently, or going to a Bible study, if we abstract that from worship, then those things will actually do the opposite of what you hope they'll do. They'll harden you. You'll get burnt out, and you'll walk away from the church. Les, why do so many young people go to college and walk away from the church? That was your answer. Because for them, they were introduced to the means of grace as if they were the ends of grace. And not a means to an end. To see Jesus on the throne. Reminds me of the illustration I once heard a number of years ago about a woman who was given a, um, this is the jewelry sermon apparently because it's a second jewelry illustration. Bear with me. She's given a, a lovely brooch by an aunt that passed away. She never thought much of it. She sort of has it in a, in a jewelry box in her bedroom. But one Sunday she wears it to church and an older lady walks up to her and says, you know, that's a really pretty piece. Have, have you, ever, you ever had that thing appraised? You're thinking, well, no, never have. But you decide on a whim that week to go take a look at it. So you, you take it to the jewelers. Jewelers get good press in this sermon today. And the jeweler looks at it again under the little monocle. And at one point, he sets it down and backs himself away from the thing and says, why? Do you know what you have here? <laughs> this is the long-lost 
something or other. This thing is utterly priceless. Now listen, ladies, think about what changes happened to you at that very moment. Number one, you're changed emotionally, are you not? You even look at it and you're like, oh, you gasp a little bit. It is? It's valuable? You're changed emotionally. Like before, you know, you, you just sort of you used to stare at it. Was it kind of a nice piece? Maybe it matched this, maybe it didn't. But now there's something that quickens you. Your, your breath is taken away. Secondly, you're also changed socially. You suddenly realize, priceless, <laughs> I've got all the money I'll ever need. No more worrying about where I'm going to pay the next bill and, and my future is secure. I mean, my family's future is secure. And then finally, you're changed in your choices. You, you used to like lose the thing. Where is that brooch that I used to have? Now you know where it is at every single minute of the day. You, you, you've got it under lock and key. It's in a bank somewhere to keep it safe in a safe. Do you see the power of something that ignites your imagination? Because once that thing does, you cannot be the same. Growth in the Christian life is moving further in on who Jesus is and what he has done so that the furthering of the amazement takes me further into more transformation. We look at people in the Bible and we think, wow, those people were so religious. How did they get, of course, well, I guess we wrote about them in the Bible because they were just religious like that and, you know, I could never be that. No, the people of the Bible were buffoons. Read the stories about them. They messed up everything. But they saw something. They saw something that fixed them. And again, it's okay to admit to yourself at this moment, I don't feel that right now, Les. That's okay. But are you at least curious? Have you ever thought to yourself, I, I don't know. What if I just took, what if I took that weirdo up on the pulpit for his word and actually said, okay, is there something to all this? And gave it a look and see whether or not there's something of beauty there. So transformation happens through the affecting of our worship. But secondly, I think now we're ready to understand one of the most misunderstood verses that I hear quoted in the Bible ever. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, when I was growing up, I always heard that portrayed as if, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And there, there behind the door is gentle, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, lightly rapping on the door of my heart, hoping, hoping with his fingers crossed, that I will let him come in. <laughs> As we keep reading in the book of Revelation to see this Jesus, I hope you'll see how hilarious it is to picture him in that way. <laughs> there is no light rapping that goes off on the other side of this door. No, 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 no. I think the knocking is something different. Because if that world is the real world, and my world bears the scaffolding of that world, then I ought to expect the fact that on regular occasions, it starts to press in. It starts to show up. Not visibly. If you're seeing images of it, then we need to have a different conversation. But in the, in the middle of the night, when you realize it's going to be another night of sleeplessness, and you sit there and you feel a sense of the utter placelessness of your life, that you walk over to the to the time clock and you, you log your time in mo one more time and you say to yourself, there's got to be something more than this. It's where you get off the phone with that last phone call from that family member who you're convinced hates you with a perfect hatred 
And the only voices inside your head are the ones of accusation of how much you failed at this task. It's the knocking. It's the knocking saying, look, all of those things in which you have put all of your joy, whether it's a good thing like your career or your family or your children's success or a relationship that that hasn't worked out, all of those things are fine of themselves, but if they're abstracted from finding the fundamental definition of who you are in me and the joy and wonder that only I can bring, then you've missed it. It's the knocking. It's the knocking for everyone, whether you're religious like that or not. But through the door are the answers. I love Pixar whenever they sort of end their shows with someone ascending the throne. I get a little teary when Rapunzel, entangled, finally is divorced from her false family, the stolen family, and finds her true purpose as a queen, and as she reigns, everything around her is restored. You want to know why? Because that was what she was made for. My friends, that's a common grace picture of salvation. That's what a Christian experience is. And it's no less accessible to you this morning who feel like you are on the outside of Christ and on the outside of church and looking at it from a distance in than it is for the most religious saint who sits in this room because ultimately it's the same thing. By the Spirit, through the door, at the throne, and to find Jesus in the midst of it. And again, if that doesn't strike you and you're just curious, come back next week. We'll see where we can't find out what else is there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Father, how can you say that to us, that we will sit with you on your throne? That we we will be joint heirs in Christ, judging the nations. It's, It's too much to handle. And yet we thank you that you are the kind of God who has not begrudged your glory, but that you long to pull us up in what C.S. Lewis called the great Trinitarian dance of joy. And so, Lord Jesus, if you could draw us into that somehow this morning, we would be most grateful, we would be most helped we would experience extraordinary joy because frankly, for many of us, we don't know what we're gonna do. We don't know how we're gonna see our way through this. So we pray that you would give us the grace to do as much. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.